Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. In this episode, we're going to be talking about power. I mean, what a word, power. I didn't even know I needed to learn about it until I sat down to talk to Tiziana Cacciaro. Now, I called her Tiziana, and she said, no, 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 it's like pizza. Tiziana, remember that, she's a professor of organizational behavior at the University of Toronto, and she's the co-author of a new book. It's called Power for All. Pick it up. This is probably the most fascinating book I've read in 2021. It is really, really good. This book goes over how power works and why everyone needs to understand it so that we can run a better life and a better business. Sit down for this one. Get some pens and paper. Get your laptops out. Get your little iPhone note section out. And if you've got an Android, that's okay too. This one is going to be good. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast. I'm your host, Tristan, and today I've got an amazing guest. I've actually been looking forward to talking to her after reading part of her book. I haven't finished yet, but it's really, really good so far. Her name is Tiziana. Did I pronounce that right? Bravissimo, Tristan. Excellent. Oh, Tiziana. Thank you so much. Perfect. Tizia. Tiziana. And if you haven't guessed, uh, she's Italian. I th- we were going to do this all in Italian, but we changed our minds. <laughs> we spared you all <laughs> our little our little detour into Italy land. Oh, I love that, Tiziana. Well, thanks for being on the show. You've got a great book out, which uh, I'm not finished with yet, but I'm really, really impressed by by the different take on it. I can't believe that people really haven't talked about power in the way that you've outlined it in this book before. It was it was just, it was different. And I'm really, really pleased so far. I was telling my wife this morning, you've got to read this book. This is really good. It's a good sign when you tell your spouse to read something that means you, you really do like it. Yeah. You're not just faking it. Yeah, but like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to have her read something that, that I didn't think was amazing, right? Right. So great job on that. The, the, by the way, the title of the book is called Power for All. And can you tell me, I have one question as I was reading this whole thing. <clears throat> what, made you, what made you just do it on power? Why, why choose power? Mm, because we, uh, Julie and I, my wonderful co-author, um, have encountered way too many young professionals that enter the, the workplace with talent, ideas, things that they want to do, and then they run into roadblocks in the organization where they work or their professions because they don't know, they don't understand how power works in those environments. We've seen too many uh, mid-career, middle, middle managers who would have lots to give, and but they get stuck and they can't advance. And we've seen a lot of young people who want to literally make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And they want to create big change, make things better for their generation. And, and as a result, for all of us, mm-hmm. but uh, lack the tools to mobilize the action that they need. So we really were hellbent on explaining how power works to all of these people so that they can accomplish all the many good things that they have on their mind. And some, some of them are very personal. They, they want to just make their own lives and the lives of their loved ones better. But for some of them, they're also big consequential objectives that they want to pursue. And they just need to be unleashed in many ways. And power ultimately is energy. It's the energy you mm. need to move the world, to advance anything, to accomplish anything you need this energy. And so the moment you understand it better, you'll be able to harness it. That's our mm. hope. I, you know, when, when I was reading the book, by the way, great answer. <laughs> I, I'm reading the book and I'm, and I'm thinking, 
What? I didn't know I needed an explanation for power, but I did. So where did you come up with why we needed an explanation? Why? Mm, good question, Tristan. So um, it's actually quite uh, clear to us that um, even though most people feel that they have an understanding of power, power is everywhere, you, you, kind, of, you kind of get it, we carry with us many misconceptions about it that are really distracting and um, deprive us of real mastery of, of, of this idea of this energy. And it makes, there are really three big misconceptions. One is that power is the same as authority. And um, that's a, a major problem because it makes people that have high rank in an organization, so they have a big job title. Uh, I am mm -hmm. the senior VP. I am uh, the president. I am the board member. I am whatever boss you are. Mm -hmm. uh, it gives you the illusion that that authority, which is the ability to issue orders and directives, uh, is power. But being able to give an order doesn't mean that people will follow it. And so we, we see constantly, uh, from CEOs on down to any manager, People that are in this position, they think, I have a great idea to change this organization to make it better. I will just put it out there. People will follow it because I'm the boss, and therefore the idea is good. Why don't they follow me? They don't because you don't really have influence. Power ultimately is a capacity to influence the behavior of people, and it, you, get, you gain it not so only because of your rank, but because you control access to resources that these people want. Mm -hmm. So if you're the boss, surely you control access to something important to me, which is uh, a promotion, a good performance evaluation that gives me a better bonus, maybe. So there are those kind of tangible decisions that you have control over as my boss that give you influence over me. But that's not the only thing that people value. People mm -hmm. value many other more psychological resources that are uh, available to other people, not just the formal boss. Knowledge is one of them. Uh, some people in an organization have maybe a great network. Maybe okay. everybody comes to you, Tristan, for advice, for input. And because everybody talks to you, you learn a ton about what's going on in your industry, in your environment. And because of that knowledge, you have a resource that they value because they need that learning themselves. And you'll be able to influence their behavior through that, which has nothing to do with rank in a formal hierarchy per se. So that's one mm -hmm. misconception. And it's not the only one. Uh, the other one, maybe the most common, is that power is dirty. It's this matter of manipulation, coercion, cunning. And uh, we have to thank uh, my fellow countryman uh, Machiavelli a little bit for that idea that mm -hmm. uh, sticks around because... In his super famous portrayal of power in, in The Prince, his most famous book, um, there was a lot of conniving and a lot of um, conspiracy uh, driving the inner workings of power. And so now we associated with this idea of, yeah, a conniving uh, action. When mm -hmm. in fact, as we said earlier, power is energy. And it, as an energy to move things, you can use it for good goals or bad goals. It's really up to us to direct it in a direction that, that makes us proud of ourselves versus not. And, and so we have to really relinquish this idea that power is, is a dirty business because many of us run away from it. Yeah. You disengage. You don't want to be muddied by this thing. And so you don't understand it. You don't delve into it. And therefore, you deprive yourself of the ability to get anything done. So we, we, not, we need to overcome these misconceptions if we want to get it right and use it well. Interesting. You know, uh, when you were talking about that in the book and you brought up Machiavelli, you also brought up the 48 laws of power. And I was thinking how, how interesting it is with, with the book that you write here that you wrote, you're, you're shifting the perception that people have of power and the same way that in some cases, a lot of the world that we live in also has that same perception about money, where mm -hmm. they have this, this they, all the misconceptions, it's dirty, right? 
<laughs> That's and, right. And so I, 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 when I started reading it more, I'm like, damn, I didn't know I needed to read this. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so first, thank you for this. Uh, second, it got me thinking as to like so many other things. It was like a prompt to start thinking about, okay, I'm, I'm understanding power here more. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop the connection because I'm, I'm like a digital marketer at heart. I couldn't stop thinking, this is marketing. Like Seth Godin, this is exactly what he says, right? And the relation between power and marketing is so strong. That's right. Uh, you're absolutely right. You're, you're touching on something very important that when we say that power comes from control over resources that people value, uh, the value is also in the eye of the beholder. So it's not only substantive value, but it's also perceptual value. So the marketing connection comes right from this ability to shape how people see the value of something, which is what a marketer ultimately does. The product is a product, the service is a service, but it's how I present it to you that makes you attracted to it. So there is no question that that's one of the, the, the mechanisms through which we shift the power balance in a relationship by changing how people perceive a resource. So I'll give an example because it's a fun one that I like. A colleague uh, here at University of Toronto, Ann Bowers, had a wonderful study that demonstrated how easily you can shift the perceived value of something. She mm -hmm. studied how people buy and sell diamond rings on eBay among the many contexts. And she looked at like 1.5 million transactions of diamonds on diamond rings. Wow. And, uh, you know, the good thing about diamonds is that they have those four Cs. And the four Cs determine the objective value of a diamond pretty precisely. So she could look at the same quality diamond and the kind of prices that people were willing to pay for it, depending on how the seller described the reason why they were putting this up for auction. And there were some sellers that said, you know why I'm selling this diamond ring? Because that jerk cheated on me. Okay? <laughs> so that was the reason. The other kind of reason, it was more benign. It was like my wonderful aunt uh, passed away and gave me the, her engagement ring with the, my uncle, who was a wonderful man. And uh, I have my own ring, and I could use the money to buy a new car because mine is falling apart. So you had this benign reason. And sure enough, people were willing to pay considerably more for the good engagement ring from a mm -hmm. happy marriage than from the contaminated <clears throat> engagement ring from a cheating fiance. Okay? No way. Yes. <laughs> so same exact wow. uh, substantive value, but the perception of value was quite different. And it tells you something about what, what people go after, because you were mentioning money earlier, Tristan, mm -hmm. and there is no question that people care about money, unfortunately, I would say, because a lot of the ill that happens in this world is because we overemphasize uh, the importance of money in our lives. But this, the engagement ring story tells you mm -hmm. that people also value more psychological needs, one of them being the purity of love. You know, you want a pure love to be in your life. You don't want a muddied love. And so that there's a, a, a higher sense of moral goodness from a good relationship and belonging mm. and a, a relatedness that comes that we attribute to these objects or as if they were embodying those values. So you can see that a power relationship is also hinging on resources that are not just a material possession that we tend to focus on. So a manager can exercise a lot of influence on you, not only by giving you a big bonus or a big promotion or a big budget, but by creating a, a work environment where you feel like you have autonomous choice, for instance. Autonomy is something we value a lot. So when I have a manager that micromanages me and tells me, Tiziana, this is how you do this. This is your goal. And these are the exact steps you're supposed to follow and don't deviate. I will not follow that lead as eagerly <laughs> than the manager that tells me, Tiziana, here's the goal. 
And actually, we can discuss the goal because you may have ideas about possibly changing the goal, given the reality you see with our customers, maybe you understand how what they go through. And listen, once I, I give you a certain expectations, I give you feedback, but then it's up to you how you carry out your job. And that autonomy is something we human beings value tremendously. And you can exercise influence on people when you understand that be, beyond the material possessions, we also value these, you know, this relationships, a sense of, of moral goodness, and a sense of achievement. All of those things contribute to how we influence each other. And I think we're very, very narrow in how we, how we understand what power is made of. We only think of very, very tangible things, but they're not the only thing. Okay, so you brought up a lot of things there, and <laughs> sorry, no, no, <laughs> maybe too it's, much. <laughs> it's good because I have questions based on what you just said. I, I took, I wrote down a couple of things. One of them you prompt, prompted me to think about a, a Dale Carnegie's book, "How to Influence People and, and Win Friends," or whatever that title is. Mm-hmm. This, this could be the book that explains that even further. Right. And I didn't think about that until you were talking about values, because there was a section in the book when you were talking about Lyndon B. Johnson, about how he was really great at at doing his job as a senator. Right. Because he was, you know, he had his good ways and bad ways of, of persuading people. Right. Mm-hmm. But he he understood, you said he understood what these people valued and he gave it to them. And and then you shifted over and said, but look at what happened in Vietnam. He didn't understand what they valued and he failed. Mm. Can you expand on that? Because I think that's core to what you're talking about. Mm, you're absolutely right, because it speaks to the third big uh, misconception I have about power is that somebody is a powerful person almost across contexts, right? LBJ certainly was one of the most powerful people uh, on earth, really for quite some time, but uh, he represents uh, so compellingly how your power shifts depending on circumstance. So in the Senate, where he was at the, the, the highest height of influence, he was dealing with a certain kind of counterpart. They were all fellow senators who, especially at that time, were just like him. They were most of them men, most of them white men, most of them middle-aged white men, just like him. Mm-hmm. And he understood these people really, really deeply. He was also exceptional at observing their behavior, at monitoring who deferred to whom, who spoke with whom, who mm-hmm. coalesced around whom. And he uh, studied them to understand their aspirations and their fears. Because mm-hmm. you can certainly exercise a lot of influence over somebody if you understand what they're afraid of. Yeah. And you leverage that. So you had a, a fertile ground to pinpoint what these people valued. And then he uh, you know, becomes president under the circumstances we all know. And he's thrown on a global stage dealing not only with his fellow senators that belonged in his, in his, in his world completely, but dealing with people from cultures and environments completely diametrically opposed from his American reality. And he was still convinced that, you know, if he had been in a room with Ho Chi Minh, he might have been able to really, really persuade him because he would have been Mm -hmm. there with him and, 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 and use his guile and his insight to persuade him. And it's totally unclear that he would have been able to because Ho Chi Minh came from a completely different set of values, and what LBJ was offering were material, material resources. He was offering them economic advancement for Vietnam, and Ho Chi Minh was like, this is not, certainly not the priority. Our priority is our independence, autonomy, remember, we talked about. Yep, autonomy. And a certain cultural, moral ground of standing on your own two feet and not being subjected to anyone and having a certain value communist value that you may or may not subscribe to, but they they certainly b- believed very deeply mm-hmm. that there was a right way to live, 
the right way to construct a society. So he found himself floundering in, in uh, uh, trying to uh, um, sort out what those values were for that particular individual and others on the global stage. It goes to show that if you have power right now in your life, remember that that power resides in the specific relationships that you've got and in that point in time. Don't fall under the illusion that I'm, I'm powerful. Here I am. I'm invincible. I can do things that I want because mm -hmm. things shift. And with them, your ability to influence other people. All right. So with that, let's go the opposite route. Then we're talking about people that, that have power currently, right, or that are able to use this, this influence. What about the people that think, well, I don't have any power, right? Why? How can you talk to those people? Because I think the way you said it resonates with everybody, regardless of what they think. This is why I thought, oh, I didn't know I needed this. <laughs> it was <just> so good. <laughs> so talk to that. Right. You're right. Because, uh, you know, in many ways, we, we wrote this book both for the people who have power, who have to learn how to use it well, and there are a lot of pitfalls that have to avoid, the, including the pitfall of hubris and arrogance and overconfidence and the, the pitfall of self-centeredness, where you forget mm -hmm. there are other people that you have to be interdependent with. So that's one set of challenges. And then you're right that the other set that actually involves the majority of us, that we don't feel like we got nothing. We got nothing to offer. So yeah. how am I going to make, make strides here? Um, we tell a lot of stories in the book about people exactly in that position of powerlessness who accomplish amazing things. And um, let me just mention one of them. Um, this has to do, and, I, and I'm speaking to young people who, you know, go to school, uh, acquire some competencies, maybe some experience, and then mm -hmm. finally they get an, a, a decent job that, you know, they feel like, oh, okay, I can do some things. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, my goodness, I have no authority on the people that I'm supposed to work with. This happens all the time. And uh, this story that, that I want to recount is um, concerning this, this guy who graduates from an MBA, um, gets a job in this company where he is a strategic advisor, quote unquote, mm -hmm. to the call centers of this organization. Strategic advisor means that you can talk and give them advice, but you've got zero formal power to tell them what to do. <laughs> you just can't say, you can go in and just say, you know, maybe, maybe if you, if you, if you um, structure the, the, the call center in this way, you would do better. But no ability to tell it from now on, you're going to do it this way. Okay? Purely advisory. Terrible okay. position to be in from a power perspective because yeah. you cannot change salaries. You cannot change compensation. You cannot change uh, anything that has to do with how management measures uh, the productivity of these people, nothing. On top of that, we talked about LBJ understanding people's values, what they really wanted. Yes. When this guy goes and visits the first of the call centers and tries to just understand, ask people, so what, what, how can I help you? You know, what, what is it that you want that I, mm -hmm. maybe I can try and find a way? They, nobody talks. Being dropped silence because this guy is coming from corporate. And when they have visitors from corporate in the call center, lo and behold, they come to fire people or to do something nasty. Ah. So major distrust. <clears throat> Makes so sense. you can't even ask them, what do you need? And I'll try, I'll deliver it. So this guy has this brilliant thought. He starts to visit the call center in person once a week and just work from one of the desks on the floor and become such a staple in that environment. It's so familiar and it's so good at decreasing the, the suspicion that slowly these people start to talk and he starts to figure out, oh, I see some of the problems that they're having uh, have to do with this particular script that they have to follow that screws them up with the customer because they can't really deliver the answer. The customer yells at them and anger 
is hits them and their morale was going to hell in this place because they couldn't really do their job well. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrible job in many ways, very, very exhausting. So he starts to collect all of these little bits of potential improvement that he has under his control. He can change the script a little bit. He can change how they use their free time in the lunchroom, what they do with that time. And sure enough, small change after small change, none of them had to do with money, with uh, monetary rewards. They all had to do with making their work environment a little bit better and allowing them to do two things that every human being values, every single one of us, feeling safe. And when you have customers yelling at you day in and day out, you don't feel safe. And he created all kinds of ways for them to to feel that they had each other. They had each other's backs. They could actually perform the job better so that they wouldn't be yelled at all the time. And the second basic need is to feel like you're worth something. And when you work as a call center agent, oftentimes you don't. Because it's a very repetitive job. Rarely do you feel like you have satisfied these customers. Rarely do you feel like you are of value, that you matter. You're not paid very well. And he found ways to, for them to showcase their goodness and what they did really well. One little trick was to allow them to put in the lunchroom slideshows of activities that they run outside of the call center. Maybe some had a, really, a little gardening uh, business on the side, or they had a little family bakery on the side, or they volunteered mm-hmm. at an animal shelter. And they will show the things that made them proud to their coworkers. And so, uh-huh. yes, I don't get much satisfaction from being a call center agent because of the nature of the job, but I can show the people that I care about that I am worthy of something, that I matter to somebody, that I can do some things well, and I can be proud. Sure enough, this from a position of zero formal authority, zero formal power, This new young manager transformed the performance of these call centers and these people and their well-being at work and their morale doubled. Their engagement doubled in the space of six months. Wow. This is just one example. And there are so many others that we, we, we tell precisely to give reassurance that you can exercise influence and accomplish your goals and actually have a positive impact on other people, which is massively satisfying to most of us, unless you're really a psychopath that doesn't really care about <laughs> anyone. In that case, you don't care if you, if you impact positively other human beings. Yeah. But most of us actually like that, like the fact, the pride of this young person who shows up on the job and feels like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do good work here with no authority and figures it out and makes it happen? and has people flocking to him to do more of it in other call centers, everybody wanting his work because it's so good for Hmm. the business as a whole, for the individuals in it. So there's so much you can do, even when you don't feel like you have power, but what you want to, to, to base your influence on is truly understanding what the people in that context actually need. What animates them? That's critically important. And sometimes they don't want to tell you until you build trust with them. Mm -hmm. And that's another magical thing that this person did, knew that they had to build trust. And, you know, we detail how that happens so you can kind of find inspiration. That's such a great story because as I was thinking deeper on this, I I couldn't stop from connecting that story to every aspect of the business world, if you're running a business, if you're running a team, and if you're trying to be successful in social media as an influencer, right? Because power, influence. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop the disconnect. And I thought, this is so great because right now, you know, for success, for Success Magazine here, we talk to entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, teams, businesses, and I wrote down something just from your book that I texted myself. Uh, by the way, Titiana, how do you remember, like, if you have an idea, how do you remember it? Because I texted to myself and I don't always <laughs> see it. 
<laughs> how do you how do you do that? Side note. Oh well, side note is that I'm like uh, Rossini, the uh, opera composer, the Italian opera composer who would write music, then lose a sheet of music, and instead of trying to find it, he would just write the music again. Uh, oh, <laughs> so that's pretty much what I do with my fellow Rossini Italian guy. I oh, I don't good. remember, so I just lose ideas, and then that's sometimes good. they come back. And if they don't, too bad. <laughs> oh, so you're like me. Got it. Yes, Perfect. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, this, note, this note I remember because I texted it this morning. Um, I, I wrote this. I, I, I said to myself, look, I, I need to understand what people, the people, the demographic, those that I want to connect with, what their values are, what they value the most. Right. And I say, if if I the more I do this, the better I do this, I can gain more influence and in their eyes be someone that they can relate with because now I'm more attractive to them so that in essence, I could personify what they want or what they would like. So those are just some thoughts I put in there because I think we interviewed somebody else earlier. I think it was Jim Harder. He's part of Gallup. You know Gallup polls? Oh, I do. Yes. So he wrote a book called It's the Manager. And then he also wrote a, 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 another great book. In what you were saying when you were talking about feeling safe and you said you want to feel like you're worth something, those two things. He, in essence, said the same thing in a work environment and that he said, this is what helps a work environment for the people that are working there, it makes them feel like they want to do more. Like you said, mm -hmm. instead of telling them what to do, you're giving them an option and they feel like they have autonomy. That's right. right. So That's right. your book is, is look, it's really good. It's, it was a, <laughs> it, it's just a surprise to me because I came in thinking it was going to be something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And as I read it, I'm like, this is, this should be, the, the deeper I get into it, this should be a core book into running a business, into being successful in social media, into doing the things you want to do in the current world, because we don't truly understand what it is to be able to relate with somebody truly until we understand what you mean by power. It's exactly right. Yes, and and the and the idea that you you're pinpointing with um, you know the, your interviewee from Gallup is that uh, as a business leader, as an entrepreneur, you need first of all to understand human nature. It may sound a little wishy-washy. It's the opposite. It's the most important tool for you to provide something that people truly resonate with and uh, that matters to them because it satisfies those two basic needs that are always with us and that allow, of course, us to be influenced for better or for worse, right? That there are people who, political leaders, for instance, who leverage our need to feel safe by reminding us of the things we should be afraid of and then mm. offering protection against those things. So that is a very nasty way yeah. of leveraging those deep needs. And, uh, you know, I, I, what I like about a lot of business leaders uh, and especially entrepreneurs who are often, they often have big dreams is that they often actually, they truly mean to satisfy basic needs of people. They want to do, to provide um, products and services that are really making life easier for folks and they're appealing for the, all the right reasons. But you have to understand what those are. And you can't if you don't understand human nature. And it's pretty straightforward, actually. Um, it, you know, you have a lot of human thought that has gone into understanding what drives us. Yeah. And once you distill it in the way that we try to do in this book, you'll have a roadmap where you can study your audience, whether it's a, you know, it has certain generational characteristics or certain uh, vocational characteristics, and you can pinpoint much better what drives in and how you can satisfy those needs with so, what you do. On that, I actually, I have a whole bunch of questions now and I lost track, but <laughs> this is, I have a question. You, you just said uh, 
that this could serve as the basis for for other things like the book. What what did you after you're done with it? What do you think you missed in the book that you say, you know what? Maybe in the next book we could talk about this. Mm-hmm. Anything? You know, um, as you keep reading, you'll see that we uh, expand the scope of the book as we go to include big changes. So there is the individual who's trying to affect the world and maybe maybe run a business, maybe manage others better, maybe lead better. Okay. And then you've got folks that really want to create massive societal change, be it to avert the climate crisis or to make inequalities less daunting for groups of people that are really cut out of a mm-hmm. lot of opportunity. Those are big, massive changes. And uh, there are tools that we offer in the book about how to create those changes that require us not working alone but working together. Mm-hmm. And um, you you operate differently, even though the logic of those big changes actually is the same for smaller changes in, in an organization, in a company. Uh, there are phases of the process that you have to engage with. You have to agitate for change. You have to innovate mm-hmm. to provide a solution to that change. And you have to orchestrate by creating a coalition of all the stakeholders that all converge around making that innovation real and adopted in our world. It sounds is like it, product development, right? In yeah, many ways. I was going to say, yeah. Yes. It, but it, is there one of those that's more important? Agitate, innovate, or orchestrate? Anything that you think what matters to the top? The, it's a good question because um, you, you, you would love to have one dominate. And, and the reality from our research is that what you need is to Keep all three going at every point in time. And, and you do that by mm-hmm. identifying people who serve that function well at that point in time. It could be that you are great at agitating. What does it mean? You put the issue on the map. You go out there and articulate why this is a problem in a way that people find compelling. So, you know, it could be that you protest and you organize uh, somebody marching on the street or doing a social media um, campaign that really r- rises to the consciousness of people that we have a, a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And then you can have somebody who's very good at innovating. They say, well, yes, that's a problem. And here is a possible solution. And here you need people that are more creative. Sometimes they have technical expertise. They say, well, the solution could be this particular technology that solves this particular climate um, problem. Or it mm-hmm. could be something much more uh, personal, that you know you know how to speak to somebody in a way that solves the issue. could be a legislative change. You go, well, you know, in the civil rights movement uh, in the 50s and 60s, you need a lot of innovation from a legal standpoint. What laws do you change to make the condition of African-Americans better? And they zeroed in on voting laws that they figured out were the crux of the problem for them. And they innovated on that front in a way that actually to this day, we, we, we've chipped away those voting uh, rights. But for many decades, we could hold on to them. Right now we have to re- redo it all over again, actually, it turns out. Yeah. And then you have the third one that said, well, you know, I can innovate, but if I don't have an orchestrator who pulls together all the relevant parties, be it JFK or LBJ at that point in time, mm-hmm. or other uh, decision makers that can help me turn that innovation into action. You don't mm. have anything, right? All three have to happen. But the good news is that once you understand these three variables and how do you have to deploy them, you can find the people that can do that for you. And then you can contribute yourself. I can find for myself, what am I good at at this point in time? In my evolution, in my career, in my competence, what can I deliver? And pull together all these resources and change does happen. Even huge change. Against all odds. We tell the story in the book of this movement in Argentina, super Mm -hmm. Catholic country, Mm -hmm. super traditional there was one of the first countries on earth to get gay marriage in the books. 
And you go like, what? How? How? That was the last environment where you would imagine something like that happening. Yeah. It's all about agitate, innovate, orchestrate, done to perfection. And you see how the possibilities are endless if you have the model, if you Mm -hmm. understand the framework, and if you have the patience, because these things take time. You cannot, mm-hmm. you know, there are going to be ebbs and flows. There are going to be disappointments along the way. But mm-hmm. I will say to answer your question, did we leave something out? We tried to be comprehensive because we wanted to people to get that your personal power is joined together with your collective power. I cannot have opportunities for myself mm-hmm. if I don't live in a country that allows opportunities to people. So my big environment, my society... Mm-hmm. distributes power in a certain way that changes completely how much power I personally have. So, you know, if I were had been born in Syria 20 years ago, as opposed to 20 years ago coming to the United States for a PhD and getting in, a, a, a in touch with knowledge and networks that I had access to, mm-hmm. my life would have been completely different. It's, it's a context, right? So... In this book, we try to really show people, you yourself in your personal life, how you can understand power better and harness it better for you. Okay. And also understand if you don't get the big picture and how power is distributed in our society at large, you are not going to understand your position in it. And that's why we want also people to be engaged as citizens because you want to shape your future by shaping the world in which you live in, not just thinking about your own, you know, your own little corner without engaging with everything else. Very important. So then that, then I have a question based on that. Who controls what we value then? Mm. Because people would love to think, well, yeah, it's me. Of course I think, of course. Yeah, it's me. But I think it's more complicated than that. What's your answer? Because you, you did the research. I'm just asking the question. <laughs> That's right, Tristan. You're right. You're right. Put the question in my plate. Yeah, I understand. Um, it's a good question. We are very much shaped by large uh, forces that um, decide for us in many ways what we should value. What you see in how uh, technology has evolved and how there are a few companies in the United States and in the world who have complete control over knowledge of what we want at any point in time. Anytime you Mm -hmm. engage with social media, anytime you go on the internet, anytime you buy something on the internet, you are basically giving these companies free access to your deepest needs and desires. And then they can use that knowledge at will because we haven't yet figured out how to regulate the use of this knowledge to protect us. And uh, we do that unconsciously oftentimes. We don't quite realize it, the extent of this. Sometimes we do realize it. You know, when you search for something on the internet and then you get all these ads and then you realize, okay, somebody's watching and somebody (laughs) is feeding me information to shape my wants and my needs for me. So though that's a major source of influence in our lives. The way we construct narratives about why some people have power some sh- and some don't, and why those, those, uh, those allocations of power are legitimate and good. Uh, the myth of meritocracy is one that we, we leverage all the time. If I'm in power, it's my, in my best interest to tell a story that justify that it actually deserve to be in power. Mm. And you, not so much. <laughs> may, may, maybe because you didn't uh, work hard enough or you did not embrace some risk. And we construct this story that I am high up because I have talents and capabilities you do not. And when we, when we tell those stories and we shape our perception of, man, just even though the system works appropriately, we are not paying attention to the context. As I said, you know, uh, I had opportunities in my life that many people do not receive. Mm-hmm. I got lucky. Granted, I used them 
when I had them. But the notion that I deserve what I've got entirely because of my merit versus recognizing that circumstance along the way opened doors for me that for some people are never going to open, ever. Those stories consolidate our reality the way it is so that people mm. have don't necessarily push back on a system that is actually not particularly beneficial to them, not because of their own demerit, but because they are on the wrong side of the distribution of power. Interesting. You mentioned fundamental, I'm going to, I may get this wrong. Fundamental attribution error. Was that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. You mentioned that. And for some reason it pops into my head, this right, right, right in this spot, right? That's it. And how, how is it that we can become more aware of our own biases then? Because that, that's like an age-old question then. That's right. I think uh, knowledge is power. And I know it, it's, a, it's a trite uh, say, and I don't want to abuse it, but the moment you um, read a book like Power for All, you get uh, the knowledge you need to at least see through some of this stuff a little bit better. So you will know that when people come to you and say, well, meritocracy is such that if you work hard and you will apply yourself, you can accomplish anything you want. And, and you buy into that, that story because it makes you feel that, that there's hope for you. And you don't realize what it leverages into you. You know, did they really leverage our perceptions, our biases, to persuade you that, that, that that's how it is and the, the system makes sense this way. So you want knowledge into how those perceptions are shaped. Mm -hmm. And this knowledge is available. We have tried to the best of our ability to kind of consolidate it and, and present it to you as a reader so that at least you will you be equipped to assess those stories and those explanations more critically and not be just you know, subjected to the whims of others who shape what we value a little too much without giving yeah. us our autonomous uh, ability to think and, uh, you know, and kind of push back sometimes on some of these stories. Interesting. So all, all different eras have their their interesting situations, right? Right now we're in one with, with COVID and you you feel you, you can sense in different countries that well I'm in the United States you're in Canada in the U.S. we have this this uh, this feeling of mask no mask vaccinate don't vaccinate and some people feel like it's a narrative that's being pushed by an oppressive socialist. Uh, Government, others feel like, hey, you know what? If you're not wearing a mask, if you're not vaccinating, you're, um, you're doing a disservice to your fellow American. And there's some versions of that all across the, the world too, right? How is it that, that people get to that place where, where we don't necessarily agree on, on one thing, right? Is it, is it the narrative that is coming from the government that people feel that we're not having enough autonomy? Are we not then in essence being treated in an environment that makes us feel safe and worthwhile, like you mm -hmm. mentioned? Where does that stem from? Yes, it stems very much from those two basic needs and the fact that some people in the United States have felt that they are not getting um, recognition, a sense of self-esteem, a sense of access, to things that can protect them and their children. Mm -hmm. And when you feel deprived of all of those things, mm -hmm. you find every possible way to reestablish a sense of self, a sense of worth. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that is to look for your freedom in every corner. Mm. And the problem is that sometimes you look for freedom in the wrong places. And that breaks my heart because um, the people that are uh, against these health measures mm -hmm. come from a place of, of, of real frustration and displacement and deprivation. 
but because they, they never received the tools necessary to assess for themselves the evidence around these health measures, because they were not given a good education, they were not given an affordable education, they were not given the tools to, to, to go read the scientific evidence and say, what are we talking about here? Is this safe? Is this not safe? They, they, then they searched for autonomous choice in this rejection of everything that comes to them from the people that they blame for their condition. And I don't, I don't blame the fact that they blame others. I understand that the deep disconcern that animates those feelings. Mm-hmm. But it breaks my heart because you end up damaging yourself in, in the search for autonomous choice and freedom from imposition from a government you don't trust. You end up damaging yourself, the people you love, mm-hmm. and frankly, everybody you are interdependent with. Because the issue with vaccination and masks is rarely just an issue about you individually, it's an issue with protecting everybody around you. And we end up being so wrapped up in our personal needs that we forget that it's not just about us individually. It's about about living together in -hmm. peace and prosperity and helping each other out. And the scientific evidence is actually quite overwhelming that this stuff is safe. It's actually quite overwhelming that we should all embrace it. But the, the, the lack of trust and the sense that those people with those high, um, you know, scientific credentials or political power mm-hmm. have been throwing stuff at us without giving us access to all of those opportunities to grow and learn and, and be good and be wealthy and be situated well in our society. They, yeah. you know, we, we, we are pushed down. And so we push back. And actually, the research, uh, our research shows it. When you feel like you've been pushed around and excluded and treated mm-hmm. mean and not given the opportunity, not given those valued resources, the moment you have one way to push back, you use it. Even when it damages you. Yeah. And that is what drives me to such levels of sadness because I would, li- I would like the people who are so concerned about embracing these health measures, I would like them to see that it's, it's for them too. But we're guiding to the point where they don't believe the source of this knowledge yeah, because they've true. been excluded from it for, for so long. I could see that. Because then you, you go into confirmation bias and everything you, do. you see, it's like, you do. it's just a circle. It's just a circle. It's a vicious cycle of, of the utmost mm. proportions. And if we could get the people who ha- have felt uh, unsafe, excluded, and, um, and also n- not given a way to feel good about themselves. You know, if I end up with my job gone, mm-hmm. my livelihood threatened, my neighborhood uh, declining, Crime may be going up because when you have poverty and you have difficulty, crime goes up because people are desperate. Mm-hmm. I am not here very eager to hear it from the so-called elites telling me, get the vaccine. It's good for you because yeah. I don't trust them anymore. I don't want to hear, hear I don't want to hear yeah. from those guys, right? I don't want to hear not. it. Except that it will be truly honest to goodness in your best interest in this particular set of circumstances to embrace that resource because it's a resource that can help us all. Yeah. You, know what? you don't want to lose the people you love. You don't want to lose talented people in your, in your community that die and they can no longer contribute to the, to the, to the, to the prosperity of the community. It's terrible. It's terrible to watch. But it's all done in the name of not having helped people satisfy those two basic needs for safety and self-esteem that we all treasure. And when you deprive me of it, I'll do anything to reestablish them in some way, even when mm-hmm. it's terrible for me. Well, I think that that's a great example of 
just applying it to to our lives in a business, right? Microcosm of our world mm-hmm. and saying, hey, look, if it's happening around the world, it's going to happen in your team or your business if you don't watch out for these two things. I have a question for you. In the studies that you did, uh, and I wrote this one down right now, do you find that the world leaders now, right now, specifically where we're in, have a harder challenge with power than they did over the, the last maybe decade or, or 20, 20 years? I think that um, the way power poisons our psyches and makes us worse is more problematic now. Uh, there are two things that, that being powerful does to us. It makes us self-absorbed and so not interested in others. And therefore, you don't seek their opinion, their input, because they don't think you need it. Mm-hmm. And it makes us uh, overconfident because we think that we walk on water <laughs> because we're so powerful. Of course, I can do that and I can do that and I can change the world and I can do whatever mm-hmm. I want. And um, these two power poisons, so to speak, are more problematic now because we're facing challenges that are so complex, so multifaceted, that nobody can can face them alone. We need the humility to understand that there are limits to our knowledge and our capacity for judgment. And I cannot be humble if I've become hubristic and, and, and overconfident, right? That's you need so to true. cultivate that, that sense, I need others to give me input here to, to make the right decision. And we need empathy because if you don't understand the people you lead, but you need them because you're interdependent with them, you're not an, a singleton just operating autonomously. You are completely intertwined what you do affects me. What I do affects you. We're all in this web. Yeah. And leaders that don't recognize that are going to do a terrible job. How so, do we lead better then? Or how do we send the message over? Let's say we're talking to a, a CEO of a, of a company that's growing. How do we make sure that they're now being a better leader by, by not being overconfident and, and including the opinions of others, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, there are, yes, you're absolutely right. We have um, actually distilled some of those very practical lessons in an article that came out of the book um, and we put in Harvard Business Review to just be really uh, pointed about what you do in practice. You have a business, okay. no. what do you do? And there are things you can do as a kind of personal development, like leadership development, um, that uh, can help you. One of them is to put your leaders through roles in the organization that are more menial, they're down in the hierarchy, but expose the leader to the reality of people that work in those positions so that they will understand what it means to be in a call center, for instance. Uh, Mm -hmm. I hire you as a manager, but the first thing I have you do for three months, you're going to be a call center agent and you're going to see what it means to face customers and be paid very little and uh, be on the receiving end of anger all the time. You build a lot of understanding of the condition of others in your company. And humility follows, if you know what I'm saying, because you have empathy too, right? Then you can change your systems. Uh, One thing that I, I, I saw Microsoft make this change that I love instead of doing the traditional performance rating that you know mm-hmm. a lot of companies still use, they now intro- introduced a, a couple of really critical questions when they assess how well you've done. Okay. They ask you, how has your work benefited from the input, the ideas, and the products of others in the company? Mm. And the counterpart of that, how have you contributed to the performance of others. You are reminded with those two simple questions that you are interdependent with those people. You are not doing stuff individually. It's not about you. It's about the fact that without each other, nothing gets done. But the fact that they are reminding you in the ever so critical performance evaluation process keeps you humble keeps you grounded in the things that really make the organization function. 
That's a right, Tatiana. Those those two questions, those are amazing questions, and they're so easy to ask too. I mean, it's these are not what I love about the, 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 those practical tidbits that we have uh, identified is that anybody can implement. It. You can just do it. This is not oh my god, I have to become. Martin Luther King Jr. and mm-hmm. to 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 be able to motivate people and have to give speeches. No, those are very difficult skills to develop, actually. But changing your systems to make them more sensitive to these basic effects that power has on us is something that is our fingertips. We can all do it. You know, those questions. I'm looking through a couple of interviews we had before, but the questions just remind me of something. We should be asking really at, at the local level as a as a family unit. Can you imagine mm-hmm. asking that question to the family individually, husband, wife, children? That's yes. powerful. Absolutely. And this stuff applies, as you said, very well across the board. The same power laws apply to our interpersonal relationship, our family relationship, as much as they apply to relationship between countries on the geopolitical stage. Uh, they are the it. same basic principles. And that's why, what makes a book like this one such a joy to write because we could span all of the above. We yeah. cover it all, right? We go from very personal, intimate understanding of power, how you, you, you as an individual should engage with it, all the way to big, massive problems at the societal level that we still can address if we follow these principles. Yeah. I found your article, by the way, that just came out on Harvard Business Review, Don't Let Power Corrupt You. Yes. Um, I didn't know about it until you told me, so I'm going to read that over the week. (laughs) Please do. So thank you. Thank you for that. That's really, really cool. And question for you. Last question, unless you have anything else in between. I took a lot of notes, by the way. And, and... Now that I've talked to you, this is like, I, I I highly encourage anybody that has a company or is thinking of starting a company or feels like they're in a leadership position to read this book because it's one of those books that you don't know you need until you're reading it and you're like, damn it, I didn't know I needed this. <laughs> so that's, that's number one. The other thing I want to ask you is like, so now that you've done this book and, and it's, it's out there. What are you thinking of doing next along along the lines of research? What's mm. next? Yes, um, very good point. Uh, I want to describe and, and represent better the idea that relinquishing power leads to better performance in a lot of organizations. Meaning when you allow for autonomy, uh, lo and behold, people tend to do better, provided, of course, you, you know, manage with a clarity of purpose and uh, objectives and a clear strategy and mm. you give feedback to people, but allowing autonomous decision. And this is, applies to an individual employee, to a division within a company, um, to all kinds of, you know, smaller business units. How do you let them do their job? And yeah. I would like to provide more evidence of that. Uh, that is, there's already a bunch, actually, uh, that has, has been provided to make this point. But I think a lot of business leaders don't quite have the self-confidence and the self-assurance to relinquish control. We are a little fearful of giving people a lot of room for action because we're afraid that they're going to misuse it. But uh, I want to... Uh, reassure them that are, there are ways to run your business where actually giving people that autonomy of movement makes everybody better off. I it's agree. a nice in direction for us to go, I think. Very, very reminiscent of Jim Collins' book, From Good to Great and Built mm. to Last. Yeah. Right? So There's another book uh, that uh, uh, came out earlier in the year, if I do, I'm not wrong, called Humanocracy. Ooh, by, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, Gary Hamill. And uh, Michele Zanini, wonderful, wonderful book that uh, does a great job of explaining precisely a a movement in that direction. That we we don't want to straight jacket our employees. 
we don't want to make the, the bureaucracy of our, the way we run organizations so constraining that we just don't allow the best of our talents and resources to come through and, and, and be put to use. Uh, so th- that's, a, that's a direction that is worth exploring. I, you know what? I, I took notes of that. Yes. You should talk Tatiana, to them too. thank you. This rock, one of the most fascinating conversations I've had. So thank you for making that possible. Tristan, thank you for the wonderful questions. You know, it takes a good uh, partner to have a good conversation. And you, you, you were just that today. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. All right, everybody, go pick up the book, Power for All. It is, it's just, you're going to love it. Just, just buy it right now. Go on Amazon. Go get it. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Tristan, very much. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.